how do you survive and attack? How do you survive and attack? It might seem like a, a rather random question, one that's not very applicable to us this morning. I mean, here we are with AC in a, in a well-lit room. There's no evident danger around us. We feel safe. There's no looming threats we feel. That's likely how many Americans felt 22 years ago today, on September the 10th, 2001. Everyone was living their own lives just fine, comfortable in their own confines. But as you know, the next day changed everything. On September 11th, 2001, planes collided into the twin towers of the World Trade Center and plane collided the Pentagon building and planes tried to collide into the White House and everyone understood immediately that our entire country was under attack. It caused incredible chaos and uncertainty. Would there be other attacks and if so, when? But it also did not cause what perhaps the attackers thought it would cause, a total collapse of our culture and our society. Because what we saw happen on September the 11th, 2001, and in the ensuing weeks and months was an incredible bonding together by the American people, sacrificially helping one another and serving one another, working together for the sake of country and countrymen. There was a kind of instinct that immediately kicked in that the only way to survive an attack was to push ahead together. Well, in our passage this morning, we see something very similar. As the Apostle Paul instructs Christians how to survive and endure attacks from enemies that surround us and that are threatening against us. The only way to survive is not by going it alone, but laboring together for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to the book of Philippians? And this morning we'll look at chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. If you're new to the Bible, Philippians is in the New Testament. And so you'll see the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John followed by a lot of letters, many of them written by the Apostle Paul, the author of this book. And one of those letters is to the Philippian church. And if you're using one of the Bibles under the chair, you can find it on page 980. If you need a Bible of your own that you can easily understand and read, feel free to take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. If there's not a Bible under your chair, look at the chair next to you or the other chair. If you still don't find a Bible, just put your hand up and we'll get you a Bible. Philippians chapter 1 verses 27 through 30. The Apostle Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, 
but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If you're taking notes this morning, here's what I think is the main idea of Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. The main idea of the sermon. Perseverance through persecution is a community project. Perseverance through persecution is a community project. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll see three essential elements that are needed if we are to persevere through persecution. Three things that perseverance requires, which will be the three points of the sermon. Perseverance through persecution requires, number one, togetherness. We see that in verse 27. Perseverance through persecution requires, number two, fearlessness. We see that in verse 28. And third, persecution, perseverance through persecution requires faith. We see that in verses 29 and 30. Three things perseverance through persecution requires, togetherness, fearlessness, and faith. First, togetherness. And you just look at verse 27. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. We look closely, we, we see something introduced for the first time here. It's the first occurrence of something in this letter so far. It's the first command given in the letter. And we said this before, but one of the crucial elements of being good Bible readers is to observe closely the text. Right? Notice things like indicatives. Statements of fact and imperatives, statements of command. All throughout this letter so far, Paul has been giving statements of fact. He's told the Philippians what he does when he thinks of them. He thanks God for their partnership in the gospel. He's reminded them that the same God who began a good work in them and saving them will indeed bring that work to completion at the day when Christ returns. Informed them of how the Lord was using his suffering as he sat in prison. He was using it to advance the gospel. He's expressed to them his priorities. To live is Christ. And to die is gain. And he's exposed them to his innermost longings. His desire, his deepest desire is to depart and to be with Christ because that is far better than anything else. But he knows the Philippians need his encouragement so that they can progress in the faith. And so he's confident that he'll remain alive and come and see them for that very purpose. Throughout 26 verses that make up the majority of chapter one of this book, Paul has not told the Philippians to do anything. Rather, he's poured out precious ink to let them know what God has done and what God is doing in their lives and in his life. Friends, I think that's important to note. Because so often many detractors, many critics of Christianity and many critics of the Bible lash out saying the Bible is just a book full of commands. The, the Bible just tells you a bunch of stuff to do in order to get right with God. But when you actually read the Bible, you see that what we are to do is never in the lead spot. It's always what God has done first. I mean, the first verse in the Bible doesn't tell us live faithfully as God's creation. 
but rather it reveals that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's who he is and what he's done that sparks, that warrants a response from us. Here, Paul gives his first command after considering for 26 verses what the triune God has done and is doing. After spending 26 verses of commending Christ as incredibly precious, more precious than freedom. I don't care if I'm in prison, Christ is using me. More precious than reputation. I don't care if people on the outside are slandering my name as they preach the gospel. Christ is being proclaimed. More precious than life even. I don't care if I die, I'll be with Christ. And Paul says here, that's not just to be my mindset, my manner of life. You need to share it. What I want most for you to do is to live as if Jesus is precious. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? I mean, you've perhaps gotten phone calls or letters from people in prison. I certainly have. Those letters, those phone calls from people in prison are full of commands and demands. Put some money on my commissary. Reach out to my trial lawyer. But Paul's commands here don't concern him at all, but rather his Lord. Be behaving according to what you say you believe in. Let your manner of life, matter of fact, the only thing I want, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's not just a command, it's a corporate command. Paul is writing to an entire church here. I mean, you don't see this in the English, but in the original Greek, every you or your in this passage is a plural you or your. It's let y'all's manner of life together be worthy of the gospel. I think that's significant because I think the way many of us understand the commands in the Bible are solely on an individual level. What I must do. But since you are not meant to follow Jesus by yourself, you cannot follow Jesus by yourself. The reason many of you might find yourself consistently failing, consistently falling prey to temptations and attacks is because you keep trying to follow Jesus by yourself. Christianity is church-centered. As one sister pointed out to me this week from this text, it seems like the first step in living a life worthy of the gospel is to be united to a local church with brothers and sisters who can see ways that your life and your profession might not be matching and who can help you live a life in step with the gospel. And saints, we must live lives in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, we see that here, don't we? The gospel of Christ that Paul talks about here is a message, a glorious message about what Jesus Christ has done. It tells us of what Jesus has done to save sinners like us, how he's left heaven and come to earth to live a life of full and perfect obedience to God in our place. And how he's laid down that life and willingly exchanged his perfect record in exchange for our sinful record. How he's taken on all our horrible sins and carried the full weight of them, suffering and dying on our behalf so that we might be saved. 
It tells us that this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, not only died for us, he was buried, showing that he was really dead. But it also tells us the good news that on the third day, Jesus rose up from the grave as conqueror, showing that when he said on the cross, it is finished, that it really was finished, that there was no more judgment to be paid out. Right. There was no kind of after effects. No, all of it was finished. All of it was buried. And Jesus rose up to newness of life. And he tells us now the good news is not just that Jesus rose up from the grave, but the good news is that me and you rise up from the grave to newness of life now and later if we turn from our sins and put our trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Friends, the news if you've never heard or never responded to that good news, then the most important thing you need to do right now is to turn from your sins. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. If you're already a Christian, then what you and I must do, must keep doing, is keep responding to that good news. You see, for Christians, it's never just about assenting to the facts of the gospel. Not saying, yes, I believe the gospel. Right? A lot of people can recite gospel facts. You meet a lot of people who say that they are Christians. They say that they're sinners. They believe that they're sinners. They believe that Jesus is their Savior who died and rose again from the grave. Friends, assenting to gospel facts is not enough. There is a lifestyle, a certain kind of conduct that the gospel produces, one that showcases and that commends, that adorns the gospel. One that accords with the powerful gospel of Christ and shows the kind of new people that the gospel makes. You see the exact phrasing here that Paul uses? Let your manner of life literally means live as citizens. Citizens of what? Well, Paul will later say in chapter 3, verse 20, citizens of heaven. These Philippians who lived in the Roman colony of Philippi knew what it was to be citizens of a, of a great colony, a great country. They esteemed their Roman connections. They lived in light of it. They, they, they prized Roman legacy. They defended Roman honor. But while these Philippians have not stopped being Roman citizens, they now have dual citizenship. And this new citizenship that's been added is far more important than their earthly one. They become citizens of heaven, inheriting all the inheritances of a heavenly kingdom, including Christ the King. So now Paul commands the Philippians and by extension us to act like it, to live like new citizens of heaven, live like the gospel is precious and beautiful and valuable to you. And what specifically does that look like here? Being united in the midst of pressure. Notice here how that's highlighted in the rest of, of verse 27. Paul says, what I really want is for you to, to live in light of the gospel, live lives that commend the gospel. And what that means, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. There's a togetherness that's expected. They need to stand firm together, Paul says, in one spirit. Though it's not capitalized here, this is probably a reference to the Holy Spirit. I mean, Paul, if you look up to verse 19, just talked about needing the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ for, for him to persevere through persecution. 
to honor Christ, whatever might come his way. Well, it's the same spirit that the Philippians need if they are to persevere in the faith. And so notice here how Paul does not consider himself indispensable. Paul says, whether he's with the Philippians in person or absent, still in a Roman prison, they can still stand firm. They can still persevere because they have the spirit in them. They have the spirit breathed scriptures with them. They have all they need to live lives honoring Christ amid affliction. That Paul wants the Philippians to, to stand firm. It's reminiscent of Ephesians chapter 6, the, the great passage about spiritual armor and spiritual warfare. Where Paul tells the Ephesians to, to put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And he tells them that after you've armed yourself fully with all this armor, stand there for. It's, it's a war metaphor. It, it's the picture of, of soldiers standing their posts, armed, standing fir firm, no matter how many enemies surround them. It's a reminder that Christians live in a hostile world where there's a spiritual war zone. It's a world opposed to Jesus and opposed to all those who live for and profess Jesus Christ. I mean, we'll, we'll see that explicitly in verse 28 when Paul talks about the Philippians' opponents. And amid all these threats and intimidations and assaults and attacks, what Christians need is to be resolute. Not shifting our allegiance to Christ or turning back. Not bowed over into unbelief when the winds of hostility come against us. Not softening our stance on what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches. Not losing our footing upon Jesus Christ as the only solid rock of salvation upon which we must stand. But rather standing firm. With one mind, Paul says. A mind renewed by the gospel and resolved to live in light of the gospel. And Paul says, striving, straining, struggling, side by side, lock armed for the faith of the gospel. You know what you're most willing to work together for? Reveals what you most value. I mean, sports teams made up of different personalities from different backgrounds with different egos and different skill sets sacrifice and struggle together all season for the purpose of winning a championship. The hated enemies, countries that don't really rock with each other like the United States and Russia ally together to defeat an even greater enemy like Germany in World War II. What we come together for shows what we most value, what's most important. And here, Paul makes it very clear that for the Christian, what's most important ought to be the faith of the gospel. You see that Paul says to, to stand, to strive together for the faith of the gospel, which is just shorthand for the defense and the proclamation of the gospel. That's what should drive us to struggle, to strive together, to, to make Christ known in the midst of a hostile world. Notice then what Christians should not be doing. Striving against one another. 
Family, other Christians in this local church are not your enemies. Other Christians in other local churches are not your enemies. There are enemies, but they are not Christians. The real enemy, Satan, wants us to think of and treat each other as enemies opposed to one another and opposing each other for far lesser things. Who you voting for? What your COVID stance is? Homeschool or public school? But none of those things are what bind a church together or what the church is built up for. The gospel is what binds the church together and what the church is built up for to proclaim and defend the gospel. So why are we more united with, it seems? Striving side by side, it seems, with this or that politician or that platform or social media influencer on these issues or that issue while we strive against other genuine Christians. Even if you don't agree with them on some things, they are not your enemies. They are your family. Brothers and sisters, new citizens of a heavenly colony, new creations in Christ, made new to work with you and me to promote the precious gospel with our lips and with our lives. Dear friends, I hope you take this verse very, very seriously and commit to act upon it. As we are about to be confronted with what seems like another testy political season. As we hear on the news all around us of rising COVID cases around the country, as we are met with many other challenges from without, I pray that you would commit to whatever happens, helping us keep the main thing the main thing. I pray that you individually would help us corporately to strive side by side with, not against your brothers and sisters here, for the faith of the gospel. There's to be harmony among Christians, even when faced with hostility from the world. A togetherness for the sake of Christ that commends Jesus and commends the gospel about him. Togetherness is needed to persevere through persecution. Number two, fearlessness is needed to persevere through persecution. Fearlessness is needed to persevere through persecution. In verse 27, Paul has instructed the Philippians positively what they should do. Stand firm by striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. In verse 28, Paul instructs the Philippians negatively what not to do as they stand firm. Don't be afraid, he says. Look at verse 28. And Paul says not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. I love the the Apostle Paul's realness, the Bible's realness. The Bible does not sell you a bunch of goods, right? The Bible doesn't sell you a kind of flowery existence as a Christian. It doesn't present the Christian life as smooth sailing. No, as we talked about already and see explicitly in this verse, we have opponents. There is opposition to the gospel. But don't think you're experiencing anything new, Philippians. 
I don't think you're experiencing anything new, Temple Hills, in 2023. There has always been opposition to the gospel. I mean, from the moment of God's announcements of what's been called the, the proto-euangelion, the, the proto-gospel, the first gospel message in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that sin would not be the end of mankind, but that God would provide a savior. Well, embedded in that promise of a savior was also the promise of opposition. God told Satan that there would be enmity, hostility between him and his offspring and between the offspring or seed of the woman, this coming savior who would come and make all things right. Satan would bruise the savior's heel, but he, the savior, would crush Satan's head. He would deliver the full and final crushing blow. And the entire Bible just plays that out as this enmity and opposition is unfolded between the ungodly and the godly. I mean, you see it with the first children ever born. The ungodly Cain opposes and kills his godly brother Abel. The ungodly Pharaoh opposes and enslaves God's chosen people, Israel. The ungodly Saul opposes and seeks to destroy the life of the anointed King David. All boiling up to and over to the ungodly Roman rulers and religious leaders and sinful rebels like us, opposing the true and better King, the true and better Messiah, Jesus Christ, by putting him on a cross. It's what God promised would happen. But also, just as God promised would happen, these offspring of Satan, or as Ephesians 2 calls us, children of wrath, plotting with the devil against God and his anointed, would not win. They might bruise the seed's heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. Christ crushed his enemies on the cross. And that by his suffering and by his death and resurrection, he beat forever the enemies of Satan and sin and death and the grave, freeing all those who were under their power to no longer live as children of wrath, to no longer live as children of darkness, but to live as children of light, to live as children of God, adopted into his family, Grafted into now this godly line through the sacrificial death and resurrection of God's only son, Jesus Christ. But even as new people, even as godly people, we will experience what God's people have always experienced. Opposition from the ungodly. It will last until the day that Jesus Christ returns. But we need not fear because we know that in Christ, we already have the victory. Well, what can merely earthly opponents do to us when Jesus Christ has crushed our greatest opponents? Satan and sin and death have no hold on us anymore. So that even if people in this world oppose us and put us to death, they are not closing the final chapter on our lives. They are merely flipping the page to the greatest chapter in our lives and eternity forever with Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, what fuels Christians is what Paul previously talked about. Philippians 1, 21 and 1, 23 life. To, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Therefore, to depart is to be with Christ, which is far better than anything else in this world. And friends, Paul's words here in verse 28 is not some pie-in-the-sky ideal of fearlessness in the face of danger or threat. Nor is it a kind of phony, masculine bravado that, that barks, I ain't scared of nothing. Only really masking deep inner fears. And neither is it an over-spiritualized diminishing of real dangers, uh, treating them as trifles. No, what this is, however, is a real biblical perspective of the Christian and opposition, of the Christian and danger. We need not be afraid because of who is with us and who is for us. We need not be afraid because of whose side we are on, the winning side. The head-crushing side, not the heel-bruising side. That's why we can read and resonate and rejoice over passages like what Melanie read for us earlier in Isaiah 41. When God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you by my righteous right hand. All right, that's why David in Psalm chapter 23, verse 4 can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is some self-produced, self-willed fearlessness from within. You're just a stone-cold Christian and nothing rattle you. Now, this is a fearlessness from without. This is the fearlessness from above. This is a fearlessness from God to us as he promises to abide with us and to live in us and to be for us. And saints, as Paul will later say, if God is for us, who in the world can be against us? No one. Absolutely no one. Because nobody can beat God. Which is why it says that our boldness in the face of opposition and persecution, 28, is a sign to our opponents of their destruction. Because they come to see that they're not just fighting against some feeble believers. They come to see that they are fighting against the one that these feeble believers believe in. And he must be big and strong and capable of doing battle if he's upholding these people through persecution. I mean, it's not as if the Philippian believers are, or any other Christians throughout history are particular paradigms of strength and valor. You know, if God decided to only save gladiators and warriors, you'd expect some fearlessness, right? That'd be explainable. But God ain't save only gladiators and warriors. God saved homemakers, God saved grandmas. God saved invalids. God saved poor people. God saved little low-level government workers. God saved fishermen. God chose to save people like us. Regular people. Relatively weak people. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And to show the strong how much stronger he is over them and how much trouble they're in for opposing him. The boldness of believers 
reveals the bigness of God. And as a clear sign to our opponents that they will be destroyed if they keep going up against him. I mean, you see that reality portrayed in places like Joshua chapter 2. There, Rahab tells the, the two Israelite spies who'd come into Jericho to, to scout the opposition. Rahab tells them that the people of Jericho already knew they were done. They already knew that they were defeated. Not because of how fierce the Israelites were, but how fierce their God was. Rahab says in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to, to Sihon and, and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for or because the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. They realize we can't beat this God because this God lives and is over everything and everyone. He's the God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. And so we cannot beat him. So friends, if you're here this morning as an opponent of God, bucking against God with your rebellion, not submitting to him, slandering and opposing God's people and the gospel who you think are just foolish for holding on to this little silly message about a God who you can't see coming to earth and dying and then floating back up to heaven. That's stupid. Or it's real. If you keep opposing to that, opposing people who believe in that, opposing the Lord who is over that and in that, what the Lord is showing you here is that they won't be frightened and discouraged to turn away from Jesus. But you will be destroyed if you keep on turning away from him and warring against him. So repent. Don't turn away from him. Turn away from your sins and turn to him so that you might be rescued, so that you might be saved. Our bold perseverance is a clear sign to our opponents of their destruction. But it's also a sign to us of our salvation, Paul says. Well, how is that? Well, because the more you persevere under trials, under attacks, the more strengthened you are, the more encouraged you are that you really believe what you say you believe, that Jesus is really worth everything, so much so that you're willing to suffer for his sake. You, you see, a, a flimsy or a phony faith does not endure suffering. It turns away at the first sign of danger or opposition. But a faith that doesn't fear denial, a faith that doesn't fear being discredited, a faith that doesn't even fear death proves to be a genuine faith. Fearlessness then is something of an assurance of faith. It's not a grounds of faith. It's not something you should rest in. And no, rest in Christ, rest in the gospel, rest in the promises of God. 
But fearlessness can confirm that you are really resting in and trusting in Christ and the gospel. In that you're willing to weather whatever comes without wavering. You'd rather die than deny Christ. You wouldn't do that if you wasn't truly saved. And you just know that that don't come from me. <laughs> I'm afraid of bugs. <laughs> now, personally, I'm a, come on now. Dogs, for sure. Yeah, for <laughs> Hold it. That comes from God. Beware. That's right. Beware the dogs. We're going to get that in Philippians 2. You know, there's, there's a flip side to all this, though. It, 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 fearlessness is a kind of assurance of faith. There's a flip side to all this. A fearfulness that leads you to refusing to speak for Christ, refusing to live for Christ, is a very real way that God might be meaning to break down a false assurance that you might hold on to. Friends, in a, in a room this size, 50, 60 people maybe, I trust that there are some of you here this morning that have not given yourself fully to the Lord because you fear others' opinion of you. You fear others' actions towards you. You fear that if you really live for Jesus, it's going to cut some folks off from you. If you tell that man that to live for the Lord, I'm going to have to stop sleeping with him, he might go find some other chick who's willing to put up and you're going to find yourself alone for the rest of your life. If you tell that girl that you want to obey the Bible and remain a virgin until you're married, she might mock you and make fun of you and question your manhood. If you tell your friends you want to give your life fully and commit to Jesus fully now, they might call you a cornball and cut you off from all the social functions. And so you shrink back at the prospect of being maligned and mistreated. And yet you keep coming here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And you keep going around and people ask you, are you a Christian? You say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, let me ask you a very real question. What assurance do you have that you are a Christian when you keep living in fear of living for the Lord? Friends, hear Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Stop living in fear of what people can do to you. They ain't got a heaven or a hell to send you to. Be more fearful fearful of what God will do to you, has promised to do to you as a holy and just God, if you keep prioritizing people over his precious son, Jesus, whom he willingly and lovingly sent to save you from your sins. What will he do if you reject, as Hebrews says, such a great salvation for a little bit of sex, for a little bit of esteem? It ain't going to satisfy you more than anything. It's going to send you to hell. Stop being afraid of folks and what they will do. Fear the Lord and live for him. Live for Jesus, not fearing anyone. 
or anything, trusting that God will uphold you and preserve you through any trial and any persecution. Fearlessness is needed to persevere through persecution. Third and lastly, we see that faith is needed to persevere through persecution. Point number three, faith. Why is faith needed? Well, to see and embrace things from God's vantage point. In verses 29 through 30, Paul grounds everything that he just said. All right, how can you remain together in trials and not fear anything that anyone throws at you? Because you understand that it all comes from the hand of God. Look at verse 29. Paul says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, Paul views everything as a gift from God. That's what that term granted points to. Bestowed upon you. Given to you for your good. The first thing Paul makes known is that our faith is a gift. On our own with the winds of the world pushing up against us, we'd pull away from Jesus quick. If faith was something that we conjured up. But trust in Jesus is a gift from God. It reminds us of, of scriptures like Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. So friends, if you're here this morning not believing in Jesus... Pray right now for God to give you the gift of faith to believe in him. I mean, all the other people around you who've sung the songs joyfully and who are nodding their heads affirmatively throughout the sermon, they were not born with the gift of faith to believe. They were given the gift of faith to believe from God. And God will give you the same gift of faith to believe if you ask of him and openly receive with a true and genuine heart. More striking, however, is the fact that, that Paul says that suffering for Christ is also a gift. Notice Paul says it has been granted that for, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. That's one thing that's been granted, but also you would suffer for his sake. Friends, against what all the prosperity preachers are saying, suffering does not disprove your faith. Suffering does not show that you are out of God's favor. Suffering for a Christian is a sign of God's favor. It's a gift he sends you. Not to be enjoyed. You ain't got to like it. No, suffering is hard. It's a gift not to be enjoyed, but to be employed for greater purposes. Paul understood that. He experienced that. He wanted the Philippians to understand it as well. Which is why he tells them they are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. When Paul was with the Philippians 10 years earlier from writing this letter, in person, they saw him suffering, persecuted for his faith. He was beaten up by the governing authorities and put into prison. Now they hear the same thing about Paul. He's been beat up again. He again locked up in prison. His entire life is one of suffering for Christ. 
but it's all been used by God to advance the cause of Christ. Paul's suffering and imprisonment in Philippi when he was with them led to the Philippian church being birthed. And Paul's suffering and imprisonment now in a Roman jail cell is leading to the whole imperial guard and to all the rest in Rome hearing the good news about Jesus Christ. And the Philippians are engaged in the same conflicts. Suffering, but not for nothing. Suffering for Christ, suffering for his cause. God advancing his purposes to glorify his son and to strengthen the saints and to save sinners through our suffering. Suffering and persecutions are not punishments from God, but gifts for our good and for his glory. Do you believe that? Since that kind of faith is needed if we are to persevere through persecution. We need each other to remind each other of God's purposes for us and his purposes for suffering. We need each other in every part of the fight to promote the gospel and to not turn away from it. Saints, perseverance through persecution is a community project. Praise God for this community of believers, for this local church. Know what we're here together for, for the faith of the gospel of Christ. And by God's grace, let's commit to continuing to persevere for Christ through whatever persecution, through whatever affliction, through whatever hardship or trial comes our way, that he might get the glory from our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word to reorient our lives and our hearts, to cause us to see suffering through your lens, to cause us to see the local church through your lens. As brothers and sisters whom you put us together with, to labor in the gospel with, in the midst of a hard and hostile world. Keep us from turning away by keeping us together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.